when you're having people work remotely, you do have to, you know, consider and be aware of all these laws that come into play. Welcome to Hiring School, a weekly podcast about recruiting for non-recruiters. I'm Jackie Koch, and I have over 15 years of experience prospecting talent and building teams for Fortune 500 companies, startups, and small businesses in all different types of industries. I'm the founder and CEO of People Principles, where I help founders scale and lead their teams with programs, courses, and boutique agency services. My goal is to simplify the hiring and team building process so that you, founders and not so solopreneurs, can implement modern, effective and efficient hiring strategies that help you build the team that you want to help you scale. If you can't seem to find the right job candidates or simply don't know where to start, you're in the right place. Now let's get started. And welcome to the Hiring School podcast, the podcast all about recruiting for non-recruiters. And today we have a very special guest who I happen to have met on TikTok, things I never thought I'd say in my life. <laughs> Her name is Ashley Hurd. Ashley is an attorney and an HR leader with experience in a global law firm and companies including Yum Brands and McKinsey and Company. She now leads Manager Method, an HR and legal firm where she provides scalable employment documents and tools for companies of all sizes. Her goal is really to help employers and employees work together well. And in this episode, we talk all about hiring remotely and the things that you need to think about when you have decided to onboard employees in other states or even other countries. And I really love how we get into some of the horror stories that each of us have had in remote hiring so that you can learn from them and know that you really do have to take this stuff seriously. And this episode, we talk all about what to consider when hiring. Hopefully we don't scare people away in thinking that they shouldn't hire a remote, but instead just be intentional about it because it is not as simple as just hiring somebody in another state. You really got to be intentional. So excited for you to get an insider view into that with me and Ashley. You can follow Ashley at managermethod.com or on TikTok at managermethod. So let's dive in. Hey, Ashley, welcome to the Hiring School podcast. I'm so excited that one, we've met and that two, you get to be on the podcast. So welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here, Jackie. I feel like we should tell the listeners how we met because I just think it's something we both never, ever thought we would say. Do you want to tell them? <laughs> totally. I mean, look, I did not think that I would meet someone on TikTok in my 40s and professional capacity. And so we met. I feel like it's the Craigslist of the 2020s. Oh my God. I know. It's so true. That's a great way to put it. I actually met, she's basically my sister-in-law now, but was my personal trainer and became my best friend on Craigslist. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> That's amazing. You're so right. So we met on TikTok, which again, words I never thought that I would say, but we have so many things in common and I'm so grateful. You're all the way across the country and I'm, you know, you're in Georgia, I believe, right? Yep. Here in Atlanta. In Atlanta and I'm in Arizona and we met on TikTok. It's just wild. So you never know where you will meet your network listeners for sure. Well, can you give everyone a background on your experience and, and what you do and a little bit of elevator pitch for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I started out as a lawyer. I've been a management side employment lawyer. That means I help companies give advice and counseling to try to avoid disputes. And I'd worked uh, for a large law firm, but for about 10 years, I was working in-house, which means I worked directly for companies instead of working for a law firm. Uh, So I worked for large companies like Yum Brands from Kentucky originally. So I worked for KFC. I always have to give that shout out. McKinsey and company consulting firm and uh, Modern Luxury Media, which is a publisher. So worked uh, in kind of national and global global companies, generally in employment law, but have expanded to be a general counsel and also had been a head of HR. And last year, I decided to start my own company to both provide employment law services for different companies, but also to have scalable tools for managers, employees to work better together. Amazing. I mean, we have the powerhouse of all things on the podcast today. Like, I love your background. I'm so inspired by your background. I bet you've had the craziest stories and the craziest experience and also helped so many people. I would love to know what inspired you to start your company and really gear it towards helping managers. I feel like as a lawyer, employment law, a lot of times they don't Employment lawyers don't really think about that aspect. They're mostly focused on how do we not get sued and not like how do we empower people? So I'm curious what made you start that? And I think you're right. A lot of lawyers are very risk averse. So meaning they're always thinking things of a lens. My family will tell you I'm the same way many times. I'm constantly thinking about what could go wrong, uh, which I feel like needs to be prepared. But I also have had an entrepreneurial, a very people-focused, wanting to care more about good outcomes, not just, you know, good black and white, avoiding litigation, but really making impact. And part of that is seeing, like, hearing talks from the CEO of Yum Brands, for example. Actually, quickly, I'll tell you this. So he had given a speech about on, he used to work for Pepsi, and on his very last day of work, he met with this team, and there was someone who was retiring, and everyone went around the room and said something nice about this person. And he was a very stoic person, but he started crying. And the CEO said, oh my God, you know, why? And he said, I've worked here for, you know, 40 years. And I've never heard someone say something nice about me. Wow. Oh my gosh, I have the goosebump. It was. And, and you think about how often that happens. And I think now people are recognizing more recognition cultures and giving that feedback is important. But so many times I saw a lot of disputes came from something of a miscommunication. And oftentimes it was, whether it's performance or even just onboarding. And so with that, having worked in a variety of circumstances, I knew restaurant managers at KFC that were the best people leaders and true people leaders, not just managers I've ever met who could run circles around, you know, even a senior partner at McKinsey who's an experienced, you know, in their business sense. And so I saw there's some skills that some are intrinsic, but a lot can be learned. And so I wanted to take my experience and not just focus on avoiding disputes. It's important for companies, but to really make an impact and help people at the outset. So coming up with tools, everything from onboarding or to have, you know, very candid, but caring conversations if there are performance issues or or things aren't aligning. That's amazing. I mean, we'll definitely, I want to make sure that we dig into the different resources you have and the ways that listeners can learn more about what it would be like to work with you and learn from you for sure. But what I really am interested in is you've gone from working in corporate environments And to, I'm imagining supporting more entrepreneurs or, or I don't know, maybe different types of businesses, but like what types of businesses do you typically support? So I have worked for some really large, still global companies. I've gotten to work again with my old KFC team, which has been really fun. 
But a lot of what I do is work with companies of up to, let's say, 200, 300, even 500 employees that may have a general counsel or may not even have a dedicated legal department, but that general counsel is really a corporate focus. So they're focusing on deals, keeping the corporate, but they don't have an employment law focus. So often I can come in and I help because those organizations may be going through the normal challenges of you know, COVID, remote work, normal day-to-day performance things. And so I can help because especially having worked in, in large law firms, but also having been in-house, I get the sense of like, no one wants a long memo. They just want a quick talking point on how to address something or talking through, being a backboard for a situation. I get what they need. So I'm kind of a, I think of like a backstop from an employment law for companies, but it tends to be those kind of smaller, but maybe have expanded and maybe unintentional. Now they have people all over the place and never intended to be that way. Well, I think a lot of the listeners here, and it's probably split 50-50, but there's definitely some folks who listen to this podcast who have a remote team. And that has changed. I mean, over the last two years, we've seen it change. The way that people work and companies operate is so much different. They either were forced to go remote for a short period of time and have decided to go back to an office or a hybrid, or they saw a lot of value in being remote and are staying remote. And I just think there's so much we can unpack in the world of working remotely, because I think there's so many things that people don't realize. I think there's obvious benefits to the employee as well as the company. And then also big challenges that I think are often like not looked at. So I want to really dig into that a little bit for this episode. So in your opinion, what are some benefits to the business of having a remote team outside of obviously employees enjoying it, having more freedom, having the flexibility in their life, reduced cost of commutes? Like there's a lot of benefits to the employee, but what are some benefits that you see to businesses in having a remote team? Well, one, I will give your answer to this, which was on your podcast I'd listened to, which was your take on the talent market. And the idea that businesses that can offer a remote work arrangement is one thing that can really empower a company to be able to recruit and attract talent. And even smaller and medium-sized businesses can be really nimble in this area. And I like the way you put it on that, because oftentimes larger organizations, you know, some are saying everybody can be fully remote but others have policies and say, nope, you need to be one of three cities and this is how it's going to be. But when you have an organization, you can be nimble. And so I think talent attraction is a huge one because there's such a sizable chunk of the population that for all the reasons you gave, aren't going to be looking, looking in something unless they have a fully remote or a hybrid type option. And so if you want to have people in the office, it's one thing if it's, you know, required, if it's customer facing, but putting all that aside, If you're just because you like to have it this way, have people in in person, you're going to be missing out on a huge section of the talent pool. Also, having been a general counsel and worked a lot in leases and negotiating and all of that, office space is incredibly expensive. And now when you see office towers that are empty, part of what that can mean is cam charges. So your share of like utilities and rent. Well, if you think if other companies are leaving, your cam can be going up. So not only are you paying your same rent, you're paying more. And then oftentimes it's capped under the lease, but still like those costs are often going up. And so you have all of that. And it's also, you know, many offices are very sad right now when people go in, they're dark and it's like a movie environment. So you have those real estate costs that are really expensive. And so if you can let leases expire, renegotiate, have flex space, then you can free up a portion of your P&L and do things like giving stipends to employees or having an in-person event quarterly where people are getting together and having that knowledge transfer and fun and camaraderie 
and have a budget for that. And so that's a way you can shift your dollars in the way that really does make sense. And so some of those are kind of the, the biggest and, and also just leveraging technology. There's so many incredible technologies and there's been so much innovation over the last couple of years. And so leveraging that can also then make you open your eyes to like, okay, what other automation tools or things can we have for our businesses that we had no idea because we've just been doing the same old, same old. And so I think it really can help a fresh approach to your business if you're willing to, to consider things otherwise. And as it relates to office space, you know, sometimes you're locked into a lease for five years. And, you know, I know my last in-house company, we had a lease, we were able to negotiate our lease down to two years, but we were initially a five-year lease. And that lease didn't go away during COVID, right? And so as you're starting to come up on new leases, like, could you get a smaller space if you want to do a hybrid work situation? Could you get a co-working space? Like there's so many things you could decide if you do want to do a hybrid situation, which I actually read a study that like 72% of employees actually want a hybrid, which is pretty interesting, which, you know, we could obviously talk about as well. So those are all some of the benefits for sure. And I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones that, you know, we haven't even discussed, but I'd love to know from your perspective, what are some of the challenges? Okay, so, and I'm gonna give a little bit of color to this. When I was working in-house in tech, even with some of my clients right now, they're like, oh, let's hire remote. We can get talent from everywhere, from international to anywhere in the US. And it's so easy, everyone's doing it. And so, you know, managers would be like, I wanna hire so-and-so, they're in this country or this state. And I'm over there in HR like, guys, it's not this easy. Like, come on, right? So from your perspective, I would love to hear your side and maybe I'll offer some of the frustrations I ran into. But what are some of the challenges that people don't realize when they hire people remote? Totally. And I think I can talk, I can start with the legal ones because I think, you know, that's that's my brain. You hear me in my risk averse standpoint. And I think there's some other HR ones and I know you have thoughts on this as well. But from a legal standpoint, look, I'll do it international. I can kind of address quickly. The gap is one, you have to make sure people have the right visa. Like if you have a U.S. person, it's like, I'm going to go work in Bali. Like, that sounds amazing. Not only are there the, all the time change rigmarole to deal with, but you have to ensure they have the right visa because if that person's performing work for you and they're not legally authorized to do it, that can create real issues for your whole company from doing work in that country or entering into contracts with that country. And some companies, they don't care in a situation they get it, they'll take on that risk, but it can be really fraught with risk tax consequences for your whole company. And so the, the visa issue, tax issue, those are some of them. Especially if you're a larger company that wants to actually do business in these countries. Like if you're a smaller company that doesn't ever intend to do business in, in a country, it's probably less risky, I would imagine. Is that accurate or no? It is. I say this because I worked in Australia for two years from 2016 to 2018. And for a US only company, and I was becoming a general counsel. So I had to figure out my own solution to my own my own problem. And I was going, so I figured it out. And so I went through it. I, I had work authorization to be for my husband's job. And so, so that helped, but it can be really complicated. But for them saying like, they weren't going to do business with Australia. So it helped, it made the process a lot smoother. But exactly, if you have a large company and they go into a country and you don't have authorization and you want to actually expand work there, I mean, depending on some of the areas of the world, there could be not only bans on doing business, but criminal penalties. And as everyone knows, every lawyer's role is you, the last thing you want is for uh, any from your, anyone from your company going to jail, an employee for immigration detention. You know, those are all things you don't want happening. So that's why internationally, it really requires a real local opinion. But so that can be very difficult, whether you're having someone that's already a citizen abroad work 
or if you're looking to have a U.S. person move abroad. And I've heard of just certainly both in COVID, especially. Oh, for sure. People moving. I didn't even think about, you know, when your team's like, hey, I'm going to go live in England for two years. And you're like, we got to figure that out. You know, that's definitely something that's happening. That employees also think it's just easy. Like they don't understand why we can't just let them do whatever they want. My old adage, which I which I, I learned from a prior colleague, is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And look, I like as a company, like, oh, that sounds great. You want it to happen, but it can be fraught with difficulties. And, you know, oftentimes you can figure something out, but the work visa can can truly be a challenge. But putting that aside, the bigger one you've seen in the last couple of years, especially, is working in different states. And from even before COVID, you would see that at times when people had, if someone was remote, all of a sudden they'd pop up and be like, hey, I actually moved to this other state two years ago and it's tax time. It's always an April. It's always like February, March, April. Cause I like, go, oh, it's tax time. It is. And, you're, and it's <laughs> your fault. It's your fault. Or in you the, haven't been like, withholding oh. the right taxes from my paycheck. Exactly. And so that you would see even before a bit, but now you've seen it all over the place. And a couple things. One is like, People working from home, so they don't think about it. So they're like, great, I'm going to move home with my parents. I'm going to let my lease expire because rents are going up and I need to save money. I'm going to go with my parents. Cool. And so you're seeing a lot of this after the fact, which is a real challenge back into anything. And there's legal things that people don't think of. Everything on the company side from, you know, as you know, getting set up as an employer. If someone's going to be working in a state, you, you have to pay them. And so whatever your payroll software is, oftentimes you can do it, but it's going to make the payroll team's life harder because they have to calculate, you know, those taxes, there's financial costs and time costs. And so it just adds a burden to your payroll team. So a lot of the people listening probably, they probably are the payroll team, right? So <laughs> I know it. Preach. Retweet. I know. So I kind of want to dig into that a little bit, if you don't mind. So what does it mean to register in a state? So like I want to, let's say I hire somebody in Texas as an employee, a W-2 employee. A lot of times I think folks listening to this podcast, maybe start someone as a contractor, which I think could be a whole nother, another episode, right? I see your face. You of see? like, <laughs> But let's pretend that they are hiring them as a W-2 employee in another state in Texas. What does that mean to register? Like, what do I have to do? Right. So, and it can depend on the state. And say in Texas, for example, Texas can actually be really challenging because when you're filing different forms in Texas, there's like taxes you have to pay as part of that. It's not even just like a simple paperwork. So overall, Texas is, is shockingly. I figured Texas would be the easy one. <laughs> you would think so. Texas can actually be challenging. Now, no surprise, California is the hardest one. But when you're registering as an employer, it can mean everything from you know going to whatever the Department of Labor type equivalent and getting getting set up, getting your like you have a federal employee employer identification number. You have to have the similar equivalent in the state so that when it comes tax time, you know, you're giving whatever that state tax form is to that employee, but you have to be registered to do that. And truly like, you know, any of your payroll software systems can do that and can often register that for you, but there can be fees from, you know, hundreds of dollars to set up to thousands. And then all of a sudden every year you're going to be annually registering as having potentially a presence in that state. And depending on what the person's doing and, you know, that you could then be obligated for state additional taxes and things like that. And so adds, it can add, depending on totally state by state complications. And so again, while you can normally outsource that and have your payroll provider do it, they're going to be going and filling out those forms and invoicing you on the back end. So as you know, we all know these days, it can, some companies are very reticent to give a pay increase. It's like giving a pay increase, but the employee doesn't really appreciate it. They don't care that you're spending, you know, hundreds of thousands to set it up. Like they just, it just needs to get set up. But this is additional cost to the PNL that 
the companies to be aware of. And then there's a lot of other complications. So a lot of times if you're a smaller business, your payroll provider will take care of your payroll, your state payroll stuff once it's set up, but they won't actually register you with the state. You'll have to provide them with your state ID, whatever your state percentages are for payroll taxes in their software. And then they'll take care of withdrawing it, submitting on your behalf. And like, once it's set up, it's honestly not terrible. It's pretty easy, but it's the setup process that takes a long time. And so in the state of New York, second favorite state of mine, California being one, I'm being sarcastic for all of you listening. It was actually the city of New York and we had an employee there and they moved actually. They were living in New York city and the employee moved to the state of Washington or Oregon. This was before I started and nobody notified the state of New York that we no longer had employees in that state. And so we were getting bills to pay a required workers' compensation, right? You have to have workers' compensation in the city. I think it's the city of New York, or is it the whole state? I can't remember. There is a state one as well. Being New York City, there's there's probably one for that as well. It was like the New York State Tax Board was coming after us for not having workers' comp insurance. And we get a bill in the mail for $15,000 of back pay for not paying workers' comp for two years for an employee we didn't even have because nobody knew. It wasn't even that they didn't do it intentionally. They didn't know, right? So nobody notified the state. So for about four months, I was trying to call the state. I would try to get a hold of someone. I would sit on hold for hours. It was in the middle of COVID, of course. So like, it was terrible to get through. I finally was able to get to a nice lady who helped me fix it. And I was like, look, this is a mistake. I recently started, nobody knew, like, how can we fix this? And they, they finally wiped it off, but it probably took literally 25 hours of my time to fix this. And so that is just a nightmare. But there's, I guess with that is two things. You have to register somebody when you have a new employee and you have to remember there's stuff you have to do when you no longer have employees in states. So it's kind of twofold. Totally, 100%. Definitely something that you have to think about when you're hiring people in other states. And there's so many different state by state requirements that can be like little things to get wrong that you get right. So like, you want to hear one that's like a horror story? Yeah. And we can get into broader topics as well, but let's preface it a little bit because I think I know what you're saying, but I just want to make sure for our listeners, if you're an employer, so I'm registered by businesses in Arizona. If I hire somebody in Minnesota, I have to follow Minnesota employment laws for that employee who lives there. I'm a, is this where you were kind of headed or no? Yeah, this is, this is where I was going down. So yeah, totally. Okay, perfect. So it's like, you have to know the laws in which, the local laws in which you have your team members. Cue horror story from Ashley. <laughs> it's true. And in, in, the, in the counter to that, that I always will get in similar, again, we could do a whole nother episode on contractor versus employee. And sounds like, but they agreed to, they have an agreement where they agreed to, like the government doesn't care what your agreement says, but same thing. Oftentimes you'll have, and they'll say, we agree, you know, employee agrees to be under Arizona employment laws. Well, something happens, that person goes to Minnesota, the Minnesota employment agencies aren't going to care about your agreement. They care about the realities of it. And they're likely going to be putting on Minnesota employment laws. So it's, it's an absolutely great point. And so that means when you're having people work remotely, you do have to, you know, consider and be aware of all these laws that come into play. And 
you know, some things like you talk about the horror story. And this was way before COVID. This is years ago, back when I worked at a law firm, but I had a client who had a lovely, lovely payroll team. They got a garnishment. It was in Illinois. That company was not based in Illinois, but the garnishment was over an Illinois employee. And it was $480 garnishment. Garnishment means if someone is, isn't paying child support, there's other ways you can do, like you can take part of the, the other parent can take part of that paycheck through the employer. And that's what happened. It was for over $480. Well, there was a miscommunication over bi-weekly and semi-weekly. So the garnishment didn't get put into play. It lasted for a number of months. Well, Illinois, had, I don't know if they still have, they had at this time, a few years ago, a law that if you didn't mess up, it was like the fee was like $1,000 per paycheck and it aggregated. So moral of the story is this $480 garnishment turned into like $160,000 judgment, I think. And you can imagine the poor payroll person who obviously like, you know, as much as people complain about payroll, every payroll person I've ever met just wants to get things right. And sometimes no matter your best efforts, like things just don't work out. And so you, anyone listening can empathize with what happened. And so it was basically, they got the 480, but also this windfall and we went and got it reduced. So the, it was you guys that were penalized for not withholding the funds, right? Or was it? Yes, the company was, it wasn't employees, the company, because the company, they said, well, company, you got to know you're going to operate in the state. So the same you're going to have let employees work remotely. You've got to, you know, be aware of and abide by. And again, nobody's a wizard. Like I, I don't have a brain where I know every employment law. I'm licensed in Georgia. I've worked in almost every state as an in-house, in-house attorney and help, but I, but I'm not licensed. And so nobody's a wizard and certainly no company, but so those are the things that can happen with small. That's why it's so important to invest and get things right when, especially when you're allowing people to work. But so some of the things to take into consideration are what you're paying, like how much you're paying them. So like there's federal levels of what you have to pay someone to pay a salary and not be eligible for overtime. Uh, that may be going up as soon as next month. So we can keep an eye on that at a federal level, but, but different states have that as well. And a lot of companies aren't aware of that because the federal level is like 35,600 roughly. But states like California, New York, they're much higher, like 60,000 plus. And so if you have someone that's paid salary in California, even if they qualify as exempt for what they do, if you're paying them like you know forty five thousand dollars, then you could owe them over. You could owe them over time because there's a difference between an hourly minimum wage and we'll call it a salaried minimum wage for sake of simplicity. Like there's two different amounts you have to know to make sure that you're hitting them. And every state, is, every city can be different too. <laughs> it can be, all right. Like, so you can have these different amounts. So some of the states, so when you have people work, you can say, well, well, you have to give this person a pay increase if you're not the And of course, the employer's like, what? Now they're losing, they're not paying as much, they're paying for gas. And they're like, doesn't matter. But then there's also like overtime. So normally overtime means if you work more, if you are eligible for overtime, and you know, as we talked about, if you're paid a salary and you qualify, then you it doesn't matter how many hours you work, you get a flat fee. And But if you're hourly, then the normal overtime, as people think of it, is 40 hours a week. But there's certain states, California, Colorado, that have daily overtime. And it can be in its tiers levels. If you work, it can be one and a half times or two times, or you get Sunday pay. And so all of a sudden, if you have these hourly employees, that can come into play. But also, if someone's working remote, oftentimes remote workers are salaried, are getting a salary because they tend to be more of the corporate type attorney. But things to think of are business expenses. So in as much as I said earlier, a great recruiting tool can be a thousand dollars stipend for your office. Like that can be amazing. I know when people have gotten new jobs, people talk about that. People talk about that. And for every person that talks about that, a hundred people are like, I want to come work at that company. Like something like that can really be a huge recruiting tool and it gets people, gets people talking. But it can also be legally required at times. Not a thousand dollar flat fee stipend. Not even California requires that specifically, but they'll shocking. have shocking, <laughs> shocking. I'm, I'm sure it's, the legislation's being written as I speak, but they'll have business expense 
lawsuits. And so in this, again, it's a state by state thing, but some of the states like California and Illinois are probably the two biggest ones. Massachusetts has some, others will, but in those states, there is an obligation to to reimburse employees for what's considered reasonable and necessary. And so even if your expense policy says, or an employee signs something says, I'm foregoing all my rights, California never cares about what's, you know, what, what someone signs, but uh, I say that pretty much jokingly, but all of a sudden, what you're seeing come out of California are these lawsuits, like someone's not just things like gas, if, if they're driving, but they're out, they're probably not driving too much, but Wi-Fi, heat. Well, people kind of think about gas, right? Like you think yeah, about reimbursing right. people for mileage, right. but you don't think about these other things. No, like why? Air, wait, why, did you why? say air conditioning? Air, literally people are saying for air conditioning because they're like, I'm, they're like, well, normally I would have my nest go up to 80 degrees when I'm at the office and go back down because California's expensive and California power is very expensive. Oh but so God. that's what people are suing for is a portion. It's so, it's so, and I say this because there's people that are like, good, people should be getting this. And like, look, I just think when you, people that work in HR will know it can be such a headache to figure these things out. But so these are the things. And so people are filing these types of lawsuits, like Wi-Fi, air conditioning, you know, d- desk equipment. Oh, I've got a special light. Oh, I needed to get, you know, this, this kind of standing desk for my office for ergonomics. And so, you know, you see this type of litigation. And so companies have to be aware if they're going to have a policy, you need to be having caveats for like, well, that's otherwise required by law. And then also know what the law recommends. I mean, there's also, you know, PTO law, you know, depending on what you have with rollover, sick leave, like sick leave payout on terminus. So like sick leave, which can depend by city state, uh, P- PTO meaning paid time off, which is often a combined bank of vacation and sick days. What you're seeing more than historically companies would often separate vacation sick days. Some certainly still do, but you're seeing that that PTO come into play. But so certain states, you know, again, California is always Colorado, Illinois, Massachusetts, you know, name them, will have laws about payout of accrued vacation. And if you have a PTO bank, then often PTO combined into vacation sick will need to be paid out, any unused accrued. And so oftentimes I'll see people totally misquote it and be like, you have to pay it out here. You don't have to pay it out there. Even HR people don't always know. And so it's it's always helpful to have these. So, you know, just so that you're getting right when you have remote employees. So there's a lot of things and we've probably made people, <laughs> listeners be like, we are never hiring an employee ever again, anywhere, ever. End of story. Which obviously I don't think is the intention of of what we're saying by any means. And I don't know about you, but I do think the world of remote work actually is the future. And I do think the benefits outweigh some of the, all of the, the, the things we've just discussed, the risks, they, I think the net positive outweigh the risks. That said, what do you recommend a business owner do if they don't have an HR team or they don't have a legal team, it's just them, they're hiring somebody, maybe their third or fourth employee, and they're going to hire in a new state. What do you recommend as like a process for them to follow to make sure that it's a good move for them and that they're following laws? Do you have any like advice for them in that situation? No, a hundred percent. I think having that relationship at the outset with an employment lawyer, if you want to have like a national, like a national labor and employment firm, if you're looking to expand and have a relationship there so they can help you in other states, that's great. Or if you have a smaller, a smaller one to say, hey, what are our requirements? I do think one of the first, maybe not one of the first hires of your three or four employees, but sooner rather than later, having a dedicated HR person or a, a partial and having that service will help because it can be such 
a burden, but having someone checklist and say, what states should we be thinking of? I mean, I, I joke, I told a client, one of my, my rules of thumb, and this is because I'm in Georgia. And so football, college football is a big point of topic. I'd said, if you think about hiring in like the SEC, the Southeastern conference, I'm like, that's where your life is generally going to be easier as from a, from a perspective, not to put, you know, you should be open to everywhere. But I was like, when you're looking at PAC 10, you know, you're looking up at those states, that's where you're going to have more challenges, but going through it and thinking also about who's going to be really thinking in the future. Like if you're looking to scale, what kind of provider do you want? Like in, in having one, like, um, you know, I don't want to endorse too many, but rather than cheaping it and being like, oh, look, we're going to do the cheapest in effect policy. If you're going to want to scale into other places, it can often be worth an investment to have a provider oftentimes that may have another service that will, will, for an additional fee, handle some compliance and registration things for you because automating that, and there's a lot that can automate that from, from the employment documents, but also the, the corporate registrations. So outsourcing that can be really helpful and, and getting you know, checklists of what's to think about. Like a lot of uh, employment attorneys can do just an audit and say, okay, here are things to be aware of. So that I think do think that that could be helpful, but establishing those relationships and staffing that HR team appropriately. So any companies, and if you are, once you're getting past that three to four and expanding, having a robust HR team can pay in dividends because one, if you have a one person HR team and that person leaves your life, it can often be very, very difficult. And you also don't want that person to be so overworked. If you're consistently adding new States, it can really be a burden. It can be um, the straw that breaks the, the camel's back candidly. If like they just feel like they're going so many and don't have resources. So I think that's a team. I always recommend to companies. It tends to be very lean and mean, but at least staffing it above, above the lean and mean status is recommended. Yeah, for sure. And as a small business owner, like you maybe don't need a full-time HR person, but there are plenty of consultants out there, you know, you and me case in point and others that do know some of these things, or at least know the main topics to, to investigate, right. When you're hiring somebody in a new state, for sure. So you said the hiring in there are certain states that are best to hire people. What are states that you would avoid hiring people in? If you're talking about strip, and I say this because I'll say California, and that's that's going to be like everyone's most difficult. That being said, there's so many, there's such a great knowledge base. So I say that. So like strictly from, from making your life easier. And if you're trying to like avoid complications, avoiding California, it can be can really, really helpful. So, so California, New York, Massachusetts, Washington State, Oregon at times, uh, Illinois, Illinois has just added a number of requirements. And again, I say this from like a compliance standpoint. And so you have to make those decisions of like, where's the town? Like I'm, I'm in Atlanta. Atlanta has, has been, there's so many companies that have been moving to Atlanta. Part of that is because we have, you know, not only is Georgia have a very business friendly from a legal perspective, but we also have here like Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech, we have Spelman, we have Morehouse, we have some of these incredible colleges and very diverse talent pipeline that so you can still find people that are going to be physically located here. And so you have seen a lot of tech companies open in places like, I mean, even though I said Texas, Texas can be more challenging than I think, it tends to be business friendly. It's just from an employment perspective, shockingly, it can be a little challenging at times. But they also, at least that's why you're seeing a lot of those companies often open satellite offices or at least open, you know, where we can work there. Colorado is challenging. One thing that people may see, and people may have wondered this, when you see job postings for a while there, you were seeing it say, this position is not open to individuals located in Colorado. And I don't know if you've ever seen that. But the reason is Colorado has this new law and New York City is adding another law that's salary transparency. So when you post a job, if it says fully remote, Colorado says, okay, that's open to Colorado 
residents. So you have to post a good faith salary range. And a lot of companies don't want to do that. I actually love the idea of having salary ranges public because I think it just negates the, the you know, cuts, you know, it, it helps things. But that being said, or at least makes things more transparent. But I also understand why companies don't want to do that. But so for a while, you were saying companies have that. Colorado has said, like, doesn't matter. You can't do that. And I'm sure that's all being battled out in courts. But so to be aware of, if you are doing business in Colorado in particular, just look into and those requirements of salary postings as well. I have mixed opinions on the salary transparency because as you're a startup, like a lot of my clients are, are startups, right? And they're building out departments for the first time. And so there's ability to hire a more senior person or a more junior person, depending on who they find. And if you post that, no employee is going to think, oh, well, I'm not as experienced. Like everybody thinks they're the most experienced fit for the job that they deserve the higher pay range. And you're like, you don't actually. And nobody wants to hear that. So like, I don't know. It's so tough. It's a toughie. I agree. If you have a range of like 100,000 to 300,000 based on that, then like if someone gets one, someone might get 175, that may be way more than they've made previously, but they're going to be pissed because they're like, I want 300,000. Like, why don't I deserve that? And you're like, right. And you're like, because you're not a VP, you're not experienced enough. Yes, I am. Oh, yes. It's, it's true. It's the road to hell is paved with good intentions, Jackie. Yep, I know. I know. You can never make everybody thinks they're great, which the majority of people are. I'm getting, I'm being mean and a little <laughs> bit pushy whatever that word is. But okay, so here was my question. And okay, so as remote work continues to be a thing, do you think that there's going to start to be laws that are like, you cannot discriminate against somebody who lives in a certain state? Like as you start to have, oh, this is a remote job. I'm just curious, like, are we going to start to see like, oh, you're discriminating against me because I live in Colorado or I live in California? And I just can see that happening. And I think it's so stupid and bullshit, but I don't know. I'm curious if you think that will actually happen ever. That has literally never crossed my mind. But as you say it, I could, I'm like, just trying to think out loud. I can totally see like something like that in Cal California in particular of like non-discrimination based on California residents. If a company operates in California and they choose to hire someone from another state. Okay. So Matt, I, I, I don't think it's outside the pale. I mean, look, California does stuff that whether that would be enforceable or, or not, like California just did something that boards, you know, boards of directors had to have female representation. So it's much needed. But the court said how California did it, it is legal based on gender, gender discrimination. So that, that's, I think mean, that's just whether it's on hold or struck down for now. And so you'll see California, I wouldn't be shocked to see California do like that. Because I have some clients who are like, we'll hire everywhere except we will not hire anybody in California. Like, absolutely not. So I literally am declining you if you live in California for some of my clients. Well, I'm not current clients. So don't look at my client list and think it's them because it's not them. But it just got me thinking like, oh my God, these the people in certain states are going to start to say they're not getting job opportunities because of where they live and they might actually win. So I, I'm just curious. I, they kept, I mean, it, like when you look at like what happened in Colorado, where Colorado's like, put your pay if you're having a remote worker and companies like, fine, we're not hiring in Colorado then. And so then Colorado came back and was like, well, you can't do that. And again, we'll, we'll see how that gets battled out. But that's we'll see how that, I suppose that will probably be a precedent case. Yeah. For some, certain things. Yeah. I mean, I would think so. Like that's, that's going to be interesting at hundred percent of like what, whether Colorado has the right to require that of somewhere. So like, you've seen other companies that have said, look, we'll, we'll hire in certain cities, like and list out number of cities instead of you know, fully remote anywhere, anywhere in the U.S. or anywhere but Colorado. And so you've seen that's other approaches you've seen, but it is totally, 
it's wild. But I think, you know, the one thing I'd, I'd add, flipping back just a little bit to the HR point of it is like, all the legal stuff aside, you're right. I think it's the future of work. And I do think the net benefit is really good from the talent attraction to the ability to have like more in-person fun, engaging things, have the budget for that and still have that interaction. And, but it becomes more important than ever to have like the onboarding and then the, um, like ensure like managers, leaders, bosses, coaches, whatever terminology uh, companies use to have one-on-ones with their employees. Like that connection is more important than, than ever. I mean, so often you're seeing in COVID people like, I'm so busy. I'm just canceling my one-on-one, but employees talk about that and a lot. And like some of the videos I've done on TikTok were about that. And so like things like that and that disconnect and not having those avenues are not only leading to disengagement and people looking to go elsewhere, but that can also add to potential legal challenges because people feel like, oh, this isn't fair. I'm not being treated respectfully. And so I, I, that's one cautionary tale to companies is it's more important than ever to have good onboarding, get people engaged, keep up lines of communication and really encourage your leaders to be having those communications with their teams and that, that, that are productive rather than just letting employees you know, be remote and go at it alone. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, you have to be more intentional to build relationships and be seen with your team and and be a part of stuff because you can't just walk by their desk and then ask you a question or build the relationship that way. You definitely have to be a lot more intentional for sure. Tell the listeners a little bit more about different services you offer. How can they work with you? And we'll start there. So I work for companies, so I don't represent individuals. I just have made that so that when I'm working for companies, like that's what I do. And what I'm trying to do, again, isn't to work for big, bad companies. If people are listening, sometimes people ask me that. And I say, no, I work to help to help good companies get even better or for companies' challenges, help them. So I do employment laws for them. So that means looking at your forms, your offer letters, uh, you know, bonus language, commission agreements, handbooks um, from, and I combine them both from the legal perspective and from the HR voice perspective. So when I make edits, they tend to have legal edits and they also tend to have voice and be friendly, like here, but you could add this. And so if that's what I try to bring from my in-house employment law and HR backgrounds, I try to marry those two. So any type of project-based work like that, I also do training. So like new managers. So I'm coming up with more scalable online trainings, which have a ton of modules in them. And they, again, will be employment law and HR. So like employment law, this is why you wouldn't ask this in hiring. That question you may ask all the time, but this is why from the legal perspective, but also from an HR perspective, this is why, this is what you could ask to maybe get the same type of answer or result or that's, that's more aligned. And so training as well. I do in-person trainings as well for, for teams, kind of leadership uh, trainings and manager communication. Manager method is the name of my, my business. So a lot of what I focus on is helping managers. Oftentimes, great individual contributors have been promoted but don't have training. So that's that's why I try to provide that at scale. And then I also have some more scalable tools. So on my site, I have like templates, employment document templates. I'm always adding to those. And if companies look and they'd like to see a template for something, I do that. And then that's, it means someone can take it and hire a lawyer to, to look at it, or maybe it's great from scratch and use that for their services. And I have also started to create um, some books. And so I just published my first uh, new employee onboarding oh, guidebook amazing. journal. Yeah, I'll show you. No, you can't see this podcast, but here it is. Um, oh my gosh, it's on Amazon and my website and also a digital tool. But so this is like to help employees know what to ask. That's I'm great. Write that down. So it's on Amazon. You can also find it linked on my, my site. 
which is managermethod.com, but it's a new employee's guidebook. So it's everything from like what to ask your, your boss, what like 30, 60, 90 day goals, writing down corporate acronyms because every company seems to have them and like who to talk to, what to ask them, then what then guides for those conversations. And it's basically for your first night, uh, 90 days. Is it for employees that. or for bosses? For, so this is for employees. So now I have a new one for managers and so bosses can, can use it. Yeah. So that's for employees kind of help that. And then coming up with manager versions as well. So that's on my my roadmap. So those are some of the more scalable tools, but then for, so like, but you can always go to my website and I have a contact us form if you want to reach out and we can set up time to chat. Awesome. Awesome. So they can connect with you on your website. Manager method is a managers or manager singular manager method. Just one, just one manager method. And they can also follow you on TikTok at manager method as well. Right. That's right. That's right. Amazing. She does great videos. Definitely check her out. We also didn't tell people that you are doing stand-up. So she's also, she's not your dry, boring HR legal lady. <laughs> she's funny. So they can connect with you on TikTok as well as your website. So I feel like we are going to have to have another episode, but I feel good and complete on remote work for now. Hopefully we didn't scare too many people away. Again, I will reiterate, we feel like it is a net positive, but there are things you need to be aware of, right? Well put, could put it better myself. So thank you so much for being on the show, Ashley. I so appreciate your time and I'm sure our listeners will love tuning in and and learning more about what you offer and, and what you do. So thank you so much for being on the show. Awesome. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode featuring my amazing new friend who I met on TikTok. You can follow me at People Principles on Instagram. You can also check out the podcast on Apple Podcasts, The Hiring School. Please, please, please rate and review. It's how we will continue to help more listeners hear about us. So thanks so much for tuning in and we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.